Well, there's a lot of things going on in this church, but I want to appeal to those who are pretty new that we have a, a lunch next Sunday at the 11 o'clock hour, which is right after this service, over in our family room, which is in the northeast corner of the Next Gen building. It's a, a lunch that'll help you know more about the church, what our vision is, who we are. Get to know um, Barry and Sue Dodson. Barry's one of the elders around here. So we just invite you, if you want to be part of that, just kind of investigate what the church is about. Um, you can go out to the church app and register on the events. You can go out to the Welcome Center. You can, you can go to Disciple at yestogod.org, a number of different places. But we'd love to have you there and just get to know more about the church. The week after, the second week of March, same time, same place, same leaders, we have our membership class. And if you're looking to know more about what it means to be a member of Pikes Peak Christian Church, I will cover that there, what it means to say yes to God in the various areas of your life. We'd love to partner with you. Really, membership means that I belong, that this is where I'm going to anchor in. This is the team I want to grow with. This is the mission I want to invest myself in. And so if you've been coming here for a while and just never taken that step, uh, membership is important just to, to say I am with you and I'm committed to what Pikes Peak Christian Church is all about. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and today is the final message of the series. If you've not been with us, let me just update you on where we've been. The book was written, we believe, by Solomon. There's a lot of indicators that tell us that Solomon wrote this book, and it's kind of like the rantings of an angry man who made some bad decisions in life. He was given a gift from God of great wisdom and great wealth, influenced far beyond any one of his time period, and yet he squandered that wisdom, made some horrible choices in his life that took him far from God and put him in despair. So much despair that when he begins this book, which is sort of like his journal entries, he cries out, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. And throughout the book, he uses a little phrase that's very critical to understanding Ecclesiastes. It's a phrase, under the sun. Under the sun means you're looking at life from the human perspective. What you see, what you taste, what you can figure out on your own. And how that's futile. Because we are not to live life under the sun. We're to live life in the sun, in a relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. God made us with a void, a, a longing inside of us, kind of an empty spot that longs for something eternal, something deep or something lasting. He, he designed us to put God at the center of our lives. And that is a key to understanding how to have a great life. And so today we're going to wrap up our, our series we're going to end up in chapter 11, chapter 12. If you have a Bible there, you can open up to that place. If you have your bulletin, you can flip to the back side and follow along with the notes. But here's what we need to do before we actually dive into the Scriptures. I want to ask you, you'd open up your heart. Because when our hearts are open, God then penetrates it with His Word. And I pray that you would hear His voice. And whatever it is that God's saying to you today, that you would say yes to Him. So would you do that with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You put in Scripture truth that transcends culture, generations. And we thank you that even today, Lord, as we open up this word, that it speaks into our lives. For many people in this room, Father, they need a miracle. They need a transformation of the heart. And I pray that they would see that you're the kind of God that can do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 actually begins talking a lot about business. We're not going to start with verse 1, 2, 3, because most of you don't run your own business. But if you do, it's a great, some, some great advice on how to diversify and how to work hard and how to manage work. But we're going to jump down to verse 7. And he says this, Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. 
You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Here you have once again Solomon with encouraging words of a meaningless life. But in the midst of all this, as he often does, he puts these nuggets of really profound truth. And he tells us in this section, in the sections we're going to read, some, some decisions that I think are some of the best decisions you can ever make. And the first one he hits here is to choose to live life joyfully. Live life joyfully. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. See, Ecclesiastes sounds like a pretty depressing book when you read through it, but every now and then Solomon pauses to say, but enjoy it. Enjoy the life you have. A couple of weeks ago we talked about enjoying food and drink and enjoying your spouse and enjoying work. He tells us to enjoy life. Joy is what we were made for. I believe it's an oxymoron to be a crabby Christian. Of all the people on this planet, we have reason to have joy. We have a God who is with us. We have blessings that, that fall into our lives. We have people around us who love us. We should be happy. And yet I find many times people who claim to walk with God and claim that they're taking life seriously, that, that look around and see all the problems around them, get overwhelmed and find themselves depressed and unhappy. But we have reasons to smile and laugh and celebrate when we know Jesus. Joy is a choice. Joy is a decision how we're going to live. In fact, many scriptures in the Bible are like this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a choice. I, I love to read about the Apostle Paul. He's the writer of most of the New Testament. Spent a lot of time in jails. And jails in his day were not like prisons today, which are, you know, have gymnasiums and cafeterias and movies that you can watch. In Paul's day, prisons were cold and dark. Rat and roach infested. And it was in a prison that Paul wrote a letter to a church in a place called Philippi. And in that letter, he penned these words. They're found in the chapter, in the fourth chapter. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. He's in prison. He has a lot to complain about, but he chooses joy. Joy is a choice. You can look at the mysteries and the injustices of the world, let them eat away at you and become bitter or depressed. Or you can decide to find joy in the moment. It doesn't mean you are blind to reality. But it means that you are not going to let the circumstances around you dictate your attitude. Our daughter, Stephanie, runs her own business, a Mary Kay business, and I can never reach her on the phone, so I'm always getting her voicemail. At the end of her voicemail message, she has these words, make it a great day. Now, when I first heard that, I was struck by the instruction because most people say, have a great day, or today, have a good one. But hers was, make it a great day. Like, you have the privilege and the power to make it a great day. Now, I don't hear this from most people. Most people say, Pastor, if you knew my life, if you knew the, the husband I had or the wife I live with, or if you knew the people I worked with, if you knew the kids I went to school with, You'd understand why I'm so miserable. Now, I don't know all your circumstances, and honestly, I don't need to know them, but I do know this. I know the human heart, that God has given us the privilege and the power to choose our attitude. It is a gift God has given us. And your attitude will determine your altitude. 
That's words from John Maxwell. You get to choose how you're going to respond to the circumstances around you. You can't control people. You can't control the weather. You can't control the economy. And when you decide, I'm not going to control the things that are out of my control, but I'm going to control the one thing that I can control, which is my response to those things, my attitude. I'm going to choose joy. That's why two people can grow up in the same family or live in the same impoverished neighborhood, play for the same sports team, attend the same school, go to the same church and hear the same message, and one person complains and belly aches, and another person says, oh, this is awesome. Same environment. It's just a difference in choice, what they are choosing as their attitude. One sees the weather and says, man, it is so hot again. And someone else says, praise God, another day to get a tan. I mean, it's just a different perspective of how you look at the world around you. John Piper, who's a very well-known pastor in our country, has a phrase that's been keystone to his ministry, and it's this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, we were made for joy. I think that's why Solomon says, follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But notice this. There's a caution. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, he's talking specifically to younger people and saying, be careful with this. Be careful. God made you for joy, but you need to have boundaries. You need to have limits. And that's part of the problem of our youthful years. We start to experience pleasure, and we don't know where to stop. And a prime example is our, our, our sexual desires. Now, I remember the first time I held a girl's hand, how thrilling that was. But soon that wore off and you wanted more. And, and we, we, we desire, because God made us for pleasure, desire more. We don't know where the boundary is. And you cannot establish boundaries in the backseat of a car. It's too late. Pleasure starts to run. And, and maybe your, yours isn't sexuality. Maybe it's food. You get a box of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> and it says... Thin mints. <laughs> if I eat these, these will make me thin. So you start eating away, and pretty soon that whole first row is gone. You nibble into the second row and go, I, be- I better stop. But, you know, you just can't leave the row with a few cookies in it. It's got to finish off that next row. So you finish off the next row, and you go, heck, there's only like five cookies left. Miles will finish them off, destroy the evidence. You know, you know what I noticed when I drove to church today? My speedometer has a number at the, at the end. It says 160. Have you ever noticed that in your car? I think all speedometers go like 160, 180, 200. Why? The speed limit in America, as far as I know, the highest speed limit is 75. So why in the world does my speedometer look half used when I'm, when I'm maxing out? I go, oh, come on. You know, wasted space. You know, there's this like voice whispering from Honda saying, you know, this car really can go 160. They just won't let you, but it really can. Right? And so you're, some of you have done this. I'm going to find out if it does. <laughs> find out if it does go to 160. And you've got the paperwork, the ticket, the canceled <laughs> check to show that you tried. I mean, you look at it and go, come on. There's so much more. And I think we look at life. We don't know where to put the boundaries in. When my sister bought my grandfather's car, she didn't realize there was a governor set a limiter, so she couldn't go past 55. No matter how much she wanted to, she couldn't. They're called parents today. They're the governor. Uh, But the issue is, when we're young, we don't know the boundaries, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Because you can make choices in your life pursuing pleasure that make your life miserable. 
And joy is more than a choice. It's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a byproduct of walking with the Lord. It says in the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and it lists a bunch of other things. And I have to tell you, I have more joy, more love in my life since I've known the Lord than any other time. I love uh, being around Christian friends. When, when my wife and I lived in Arizona, we had this group of friends who were pretty crazy. We would do just practical jokes on each other. We have a, we have a friend who cleaned carpet, and he hated red Kool-Aid because what it did to carpets. And so one day when he was gone, we took about, about 100 little Dixie cups, filled them with red Kool-Aid, and put them in his driveway, all over his driveway. Yeah, that was fun. Another time when, uh, when their son was sick and in the house, but the parents were gone, we, we, uh, we, we got in the house, tied him up, and we, uh, we filled it with balloons because his birthday was coming, put cellophane p- paper wrap around his toilet, you can't see that late at night. He found that out. So, so we did all these crazy things. And then we found a camera in a drawer and decided to take pictures of all of us in his house so that when he would develop the film, this is a film camera, he would be shocked when he got the photos back saying, hey, there are people in my house. So that was the kind of group. And when we left that church, the final Sunday, there was a reception and we said goodbye to everyone. And the last little group to say goodbye to us were our friends. And they walked us out to our van to say goodbye. And our van was wrapped from top to bottom in cellophane. (laughs) You can have good fun in the Lord. We were made for joy. That's a critical decision to make. He goes on in chapter 12, says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And then he jumped down to verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden, golden bowl is broken before the picture is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Solomon says, choose God early. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And I believe what Solomon lacks in purity, he makes up for in honesty. Here's a man who's kind of regretful of where he went with his life. And it's like he's saying, if I had to do it all, all over again, I would remember God in the, in the youthful days of my life when pleasure is abounding. I would have remembered God because here's a guy who had every opportunity to know God well. He was the son of King David. David, the man after God's own heart, was his dad. He was visited by God in a vision that, that told him about the wisdom he would receive. He was the one who dedicated the temple with this profound prayer that when he finished, the fire came down from heaven and smoke filled the temple. I mean, talk about real encounters with God. How could someone like that forget God? And by the way, the word remember here is not like tying a string on your finger and just acknowledging God exists. Remember is far deeper. Here's a story that will illustrate that. There's a lady in the Old Testament named Hannah. Hannah was unable to get pregnant, and she prayed that God would enable her to have a child. And the Bible says, and the Lord remembered Hannah, and she became pregnant. Remembering means to act on the behalf of. When you remember God, it's not, hey, God exists. It's not just acknowledging that. It's saying, I'm going to act on behalf of God. It's gonna be, it means this. I'm making God a reality in my life. He's saying, know who put you here and give your life to him. That's basically what he's saying. And he says, do it when you're young. Do it when you're young. Why? Because you have a whole life to live for him. 
whole life to glorify God. An old evangelist named Dwight L. Moody came back from a revival once, and his wife said, how did it go? He said, well, two and a half lives were saved. She said, oh, there was a child saved. He goes, no, 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 two kids and an adult. See, the adults already lived half his life, but these two kids, they have their whole life in front of them. That's why children's ministry is so important here. You get a child that's 8 or 10 years old, giving their life to the Lord, we have the opportunity to have 70, 80 years ahead of them to give to the Lord. Find them when you're young. Why is that so critical? Because, it's, because life hardens us as we get older. Most people accept Christ before the age of 18. It gets harder. Kids are more receptive. They're like fish in water when you talk about God, when you pray, when you, when you tell them to trust. But life hardens us, and we start to doubt whether God really cares or whether he can be trusted. And it's a big step of faith for us to give our lives to the Lord. And that's why Jesus even said, unless you become like who? Little child. You cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Find him when you're young. A lot of young people who grow up in church have never had their faith tested. And I can't really tell even looking in this room for young people of where they stand with their faith because many young people go to church because they're made to. It's not an option. You really find out where their faith is when they leave high school. And honestly, we have a whole generation of 20 to 28-year-olds who do not go to church. It's the, it's the lowest demographic when it comes to church attendance. Now, I, I think a lot of them are searching, but I also think there's another problem. We who are in the church have ignored the world they grow up, they're growing up in. See, the world that our young people are growing up in today is so different than the world that I grew up in as a kid. They're dealing with stresses that I never had to deal with. They're dealing with decisions that I didn't have to make as a kid, with fears. And you and I need to know that, that the question is not, why don't young people go to church? The question is this, how do we need to, need to change the church to, to reach them with the gospel, to reach young people with the message of Jesus? And I'm not talking about changing doctrine, changing the teachings of the Bible. Those are, those are eternal. What I'm talking about is, are the tactics what is our approach? What is our method? You know, young people don't adapt to the old methods of how we grew up in church. It's just not the world they live in anymore. Technology is so different. Relationships are so different and all that. So we need to be asking the question and talking to young people, what do we need to do differently to reach you? Because don't we want young people in the church? Don't we want young people to feel like they can be at home in the church? Find the creator when you're young. And whether you're young or old, I do know this, that there is one timeless truth that transcends every generation, and it's found in the questions that Solomon asked throughout this book. I wrote down every question that Solomon asks in this book, and, and, and I found a pattern. Listen to this. Here's his question, or here's his series of questions. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Who knows if the spirit of a man rises upward? Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Who knows what is good for a man in life? Who knows the explanation of things? Who can tell him what will happen after him? Who can tell him what is to come? You notice a pattern? You notice a, a, a key word in all those questions? Who? Who? The biggest questions you'll ever ask in life are not the what questions, they're the who questions. And, and if we're going through life trying to figure out, you know, what's the purpose of life and, and what should I be doing with my life, you're asking the wrong questions. You need to be asking, who put me here? Who put me here? Who loves me? Because the, the who questions 
will answer the what questions. What I mean by that is this. I've had people often say, Pastor, I'm trying to find out God's will. I want to know what is his will for my life. People that I know that are, that are passionately following Jesus don't ask that question. It's, as, it's almost as if God's already informed them of what that is because they've answered the who question. Jesus didn't say to seek his will. He said to seek him. And when you seek him, he unveils his will. So God wants us to know who he is. He goes on to give these pictures of the cord severing, the golden bowl breaking, the pitcher being shattered, the wheel broken at the well. All those, and all through chapter 12, he, he really describes the failing of the body. There, there comes a time when your body lacks the even drive to pursue God. Your body is failing. It's hard to worship, hard to get on your knees to pray. He says, so seek God when you're young. But then he ends with, a, I think, a climatic ending with this. He says, he says in verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. This is it. This is what Solomon concludes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He tells us to make this decision, the decision to obey his commands fearfully. Fearfully. Solomon says these words are, are like goads. Goad was an instrument a farmer would use, a long pole with a, with a sharp end, and he would use it to poke the oxen in the behind, get moving. And sometimes when you're in church and you hear God speaking through his word, there's a sharp poking. Could be your, your wife's elbow. But more likely it's the Holy Spirit poking you, getting your attention. He says they're like firmly embedded nails or spikes, stakes. You do that when you're anchoring something, getting something to stand firm. He says, these truths are firm. They, they get you anchored in life. And the winds may blow around you, but you are anchored to the truth. And they're all unified as if one shepherd, which is kind of interesting, as if one shepherd gave all these. And the Bible says that Jesus is that good shepherd. Fear God and keep his commandments, he says, for this is the duty of all mankind. This is stated other places in Scripture, too. In Job chapter 28, verse 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. You know, the Bible says some 80 times that we are to love God, love his word, love his name. It says 91 times we are to trust him, trust his word, trust his name. But it says 278 times we're to fear him. So are those in competition with each other? Love God, trust God, fear God? Or are they facets of the very same thing, that, that to love God is to trust God, and to trust God is to fear God, and to fear God is to love God? I said a couple of weeks ago that, that the fear of God is this awe, this respect, this reverence for, for him. It, it's, it's like electricity, I said, because electricity is something we love. We love the fact that our lights go on, that technology works, that the electric heater heats. We love that. We're also aware that this electricity can kill you. Or fire. We love the warmth of a fireplace, but we also have this respect for fire because it can destroy us. When I look at God, I see a God who, who's so good, who does so many good things in my life, but I don't mess around with God because God, God can send me to hell. 
if you choose. And so we live our lives with this respect that I owe my life to him, and my life matters to him, and he's paying attention to that life, which might give you a lot of fear. Like, I don't want God to know everything about my life because it's not good. But you need to know this, that in spite of the fact that we have messed up like Solomon, there's grace. I want to introduce you to a couple. I'm going to invite Chris and Tammy Gonzalez up here. I've gotten to know them a lot. They sit in the front row during the last service. Very uh, happy couple. But you need to know a little bit about their story. Um, Chris and Tammy have been through a lot of challenges in their lives. And uh, let's welcome them this morning. Would you clap? All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, I hope you're not nervous. No. Good. Right. Good. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, how, how many years have you been together, and how long have you been coming to this church? Um, well, we've been together eight years, but we've been married four. And we've been coming here since Thanksgiving 08. 08. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And you both told me that you grew up in really Christian homes, a lot of Christian influences, going to church and all that. Mm-hmm. But somehow, kind of like Solomon, you forgot your creator in the days of your youth. What right. happened? Um, well, for me, it started out when I was really young. My father left the home. I was about 11 or 12. And once he left, I didn't have that father figure, that man figure that I really needed as a young kid growing up. So I kind of turned to the older guys that were in my neighborhood, which they weren't really doing the right thing. So it's kind of led me down the wrong path. And got you in a lot of trouble. Got me in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. How about you, Tammy? Um, for me, at the end of high school, more towards the end of high school, I just started hanging out with the wrong crowd and um, drifted away from church and my parents who were involved in the church and everything and um, just started hanging out with the wrong people and got into drugs really bad. And, um, yeah, it was... And, and drugs was both kind of your issue. You ended up in a yeah. halfway house where you met. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so uh-huh. how did Jesus come into the picture to bring you back? Um, well, we met, I met Chris at the halfway house, and um, ever since then, uh, 2008 we met, and then we started coming here, and we've been coming here ever since, and faithfully every, every Sunday, and then we're part of a... Bible study now and all kinds of stuff. We do all kinds you of stuff. You said he's had a big influence. So what brought yeah. you, Chris, back to the um, Lord? I, kind of the same story, but for me it started um, when I ended up in prison from, you know, hanging out with that crowd I wasn't supposed right. to be hanging around. Um, you know, when you go to prison, you know, they put you in a cell and you have nothing. You're stripped of everything. All you have is a set of clothes and a toothbrush, basically. So and at, that, at that point, I just found myself dropping to my knees saying, all I have is God. and Kind of just, a time of surrender. Yeah, really. like Jesus, please, you know, help me, get me out of here. It's just, you know, all I have, help me through this. And yeah. so where has that taken you now? Where are you in your, in your relationship with the Lord? Um, he's our everything. Um, we, we start our day off with him. We end our day off with him. Yeah. And he's the center of our marriage. Yep, of our life. Like, we, we would fall apart if we didn't have him. Yeah, we would. Well, you told me that every morning you guys pray together, yep. mm-hmm. and uh, you have a prayer, which you forgot last service, but I have it this service. <laughs> we're, we're ready. I, I, I haven't heard this prayer, but they pray every morning. Prayer we every start morning. our day so off like, with like this. That so it's, this is pretty cool. So it's called uh, Confessions for Overcomers. And are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. My body, my body is, is a temple, temple for the Holy Spirit, Spirit redeemed, cleansed, cleansed, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Jesus. My, my members, the parts of my body, are instruments of righteousness, 
yield it to God for his service and for his glory. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. All has been settled by the blood of Jesus. I overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. And I love not my life unto death. My body is for the Lord and the Lord is for my body. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys. Thank you thank so you much. Guys. I see guy working in there. Thanks. You know, we, we mess up a lot. But here's the good news. There's grace. You may be at a place of your life that, that, that you're looking at, at all the, the junk and how you've strayed and how you haven't followed the Lord and, and may wonder, like, what do I need to do? What, 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 what do I have to change in order for God to accept me? And I'm telling you that the, the question is not a what question. The question is this. Who would love you enough to rescue you? Who would love you enough to send his one and only son to die on a cross for you? Who would love you enough to come and live inside of you, to walk through life and all the challenges you face? Who would do that for you? There is someone, and his name is Jesus. We want you to know him.